0: You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm your host, Sean Devine. The podcast is supported by WorkOnRails.com. If you have a Ruby on Rails job to promote, you can list it for free using the code RELAUNCH. This is episode number 143, a conversation with Terrence Lee. Hey, Terrence. Hey,
1: Sean. How's it going?
0: It's going great. Thanks so much for spending time uh, today to talk to us. Uh, Tell us a bit about yourself and what you're currently doing and how you got here.
1: Sure. Um, I guess I work for Heroku. I've been maintaining kind of Heroku's Ruby support for the last two, two and a half years. Um, I think ever since the... If you're familiar with Heroku stacks and stuff, uh, ever since basically a few months into Cedar, I kind of started taking that over. Um, And then... I'm involved with uh, a slew of other open source projects as well. Uh, put some time into rescue. Uh, done a good amount of stuff in Bundler and uh, got involved with Rails Girls, which I didn't have any plans on doing any of that. And uh, recently just caught commit bit on Ruby Core.
0: Wow, wow! So there's a lot to talk about in the last, or in terms of what's going on right now. Let alone the last two and a half years. But let's spend say five minutes talking about uh, what happened before two and a half years ago when you joined Heroku's Ruby Task Force. How did you get there? Uh, tell us a bit about your programming journey.
1: Sure. Uh, well, I did uh, comp sci in university, um, and that, I think that was around, like, I graduated from undergrad in 2007 then went straight to grad school because I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, and then when I graduated from that, like, that's when the housing market crashed. So, like, no one was hiring. And uh, I took a job in Austin, Texas at a small startup called Other Inbox. Um, I think they're now acquired by Return Path, some other email thing. But they're basically a email service for, uh, that would go and try to sift through your email and automate... Like, take out all of your automated messages and things. So, the stuff left in your inbox is messages that matter to you from like important people or people that you have personal communication with. Um, The other stuff wasn't that it's not important, but it'd be like things like Amazon notifications and uh, things like that, messages and mailing lists that you'd sign up for. Um, So, just trying to help prioritize your inbox, I guess.
0: Have you used the, the Gmail feature that's sort of like that? No,
1: i have uh, i have used it a little bit uh it's been kind of hit or miss for me but i think it's probably just because i haven't been
0: training it very well <laughs> maybe it's because you didn't write it <laughs> yeah uh so uh what about in school did you program ruby in school how'd you find your way to ruby in the first place
1: yeah uh so like a lot of people i think back in the day i i did uh pearl and php and i was building some php sites uh I was helping out some of the departments with doing, uh, like, PHP things for some research stuff at the time, and then I heard about Ruby on Rails uh, being the new hotness for web development. Uh, And I was uh, doing, I guess, like, systems administration work uh, for the Center for uh, Speech and Processing at uh, the university, and I wanted to pick up Ruby, and they let me, like during part of work time, kind of, like, learn Ruby and kind of automate, like, part of the systems during Ruby stuff. And after picking up the pickaxe and reading through it and, and really programming it, I kind of fell in love with Ruby and I didn't even, like, start programming in Rails or anything at the time. And I think this was, like, Rails 0.910 era, to give you a time frame. Um, and then after that, I, like, started doing stuff in Rails and uh, kind of just picked up stuff there and uh, then I got a job at Other Inbox um, and I did some internships where I managed to sneak Ruby in like I Internet at Akamai where they had me migrate a Mason Pearl bait web front end for this Q&A system and I got to do that in Rails and then at Bloomberg I also interned there and got to sneak some Ruby in, in with the C++ that I had to do
0: Cool. So you went from sneaking it in to being in kind of the center of the Ruby community at Heroku. Tell us about getting that job, and, and then go into some detail about what your current job entails. Because for me, and I, I bet for a lot of others, we know you as a super positive guy on Twitter that sends out the messages that say the the new version of Ruby is supported, and and I wonder what's in back of that process. So the more you can tell, the better.
1: Sure. Uh so I, I worked at, like, Other Inbox and did consulting for a little while and that for about 13 months, I think, in total. And then uh, we during one of my consulting projects, I, I, like I, I saw Heroku, I think, the first time at, in Vegas for the RailsConf, and they had that booth, and I, I looked into it a little bit, and I remember at the time I was thinking, this thing's never going <laughs> to succeed or take off. And uh, I kind of balked at it uh, just because, you know, we were doing a bunch of stuff on EC2 like a lot of people were um, and still do today. And it it worked fine for us. Uh, And it wasn't until Blake Mizorini came to a local Austin on Rails um, meetup and demoed it and did it and showed it to us that it really clicked for me. And I think after that point, I kind of really believed in the vision and like, bought, like, everything Heroku, uh, was trying to solve, um, and so over the Christmas holidays, I took our consulting project and just tried staging it on Heroku and getting it working, and it was super easy, and we managed to convince our client to, to switch over to it, um, and Heroku was, like, great and super fast back then, but, like, there's still, it was, like, definitely during its infancy, days and i spent a bunch of time on the pound heroku channel on irc and was just helping like i was getting a lot of help from david dollar um it was the guy that eventually got me hired pretty much but like i, I was i got i got i established a good relationship with him because i would have like questions and you know I, I wouldn't just ask him anything i would spend a lot of time on my own trying to figure stuff out and then when i really got stuck i would talk to him And then I ended up being the guy who helped a bunch of people out. And so when they were, he was working on the support team at the time. And when they were looking to hire someone else, he came and talked to me about it. And being in love with like the product and everything they were trying to do, I interviewed and they offered me a job where I would work remote on the support team with David. And I did that for about 15 months. Hmm. and during that time, uh, so when, back in that, uh, around that time frame was when uh, Bundler, I guess, was starting to, like, being talked about in public, like Yehuda and Carl were working on it, and they came to a Lone Star Ruby conference uh, the previous year, and they demoed it uh, during one of the lightning talks there, and I thought it was the greatest things like that I've ever seen for a long time because i remember being like starting on any new rails project and it would take like a whole day to just like even commit like get the test running locally on your machine like installing the right gems and figuring out like what gems you need to install that weren't documented and they would have to, and we were using cucumber back then so like different versions of cucumber were not compatible at all but if you put them in config.gem and you did rake gem and install, like, it wouldn't work properly. And, and so that would always take, like, a long time for every person we hired. Um, and so when I saw Bundler, it was super amazing uh, to me to be able to essentially cut that that whole, like, thing down. And so when Heroku supported Bundler, like, I immediately, like, got our app upgraded to it, even though it was, like, in beta. And it ended up being, like, a super painful process. I'm sure a ton of people... Who got involved back then remember the painful days of the .9 era where things would break every release and then they would fix certain bugs but then it would break other things and uh, every time Heroku would upgrade Bundler it would break our app in production. It was kind of a really bad
0: time then. Um, Now what year was this, give or take? uh, This
1: was um, 2000 I want to say 2010 Mm -hmm. 2009, 2010, around then. Uh, yeah, so it was like, yeah, the beginning of 2010, the end of 2009 uh, for the Bundler 0.9 stuff. Uh, and, uh, like, Bundler Point was really different because it was the one where everything was sandbox. So if you're familiar with uh, dash dash path and Bundler, where it installs it in a separate directory that's separate from your system, that was kind of how... Bundler point eight worked, hmm. um, but for a lot of people, were kind of unhappy with that, and they want to use their system gems and stuff. And they changed a lot. They changed all that in Bundler point nine, which is kind of the Bundler that we know today, uh, where it interacts with the system, or you can vendor it uh, and what have you. But the default mode was to install stuff to the system. Uh, but anyways, like yeah, so they would break things all the time, and anytime Heroku would upgrade. Like, it would break our app, and then we'd have to spend a bunch of time fixing it. And so when I got to Heroku, like, this was a very, like, poignant subject for me. Like, I was very sensitive to this fact um, that uh, I eventually got put in charge of, like, Bundler on Heroku. <laughs> so I got really... I got to interact with Carl and Yehuda a lot. And I remember at the time being super scared to talk to these guys because, you know, I, I just started programming Ruby. And here were these two guys, like, who are super famous uh, in the Ruby community. And, uh, but after talking with them and trying to get good support on Heroku um, and working with them for a while at the end of, like, basically the .926 release and, like, the RC cycle, um, what, what, after they released 1.0, Carl made the joke that I should commit to Bundler. And uh, at, at this point, I've never, like, I never cloned the project or really looked at the source code at all. <laughs> and then the next day, he was like, here's commit bit, bro. And uh, then they, like, soon after, they quit and left Engine Yard. And, uh, you know, they kind of moved to uh, other things. And uh, so I was kind of stuck with this commit bit and not really knowing what to do. Um,
0: wow. So, it, was, so was Bundler your first... Um big or not even big but open source ruby project that you had a big role in
1: uh yeah it definitely was i i did some stuff with like the pivot tracker gem with uh justin smestad while i was working at other inbox uh because we use pivot tracker there um but like i only made a few feature patches here and there and he gave me commit bit but bundler is probably the uh, real like serious first project that like someone trusted me with oh Um, man
0: so the first project's like the most core gem to most projects that exist yeah it it was
1: uh it bundler changed a lot of how i viewed open source and maintenance and other things um i i think i became a lot more conservative after working on bundler um we uh after getting commit bit like the first thing i did was fix some tests and then it, it probably took me like six to eight months to even feel comfortable like making patches on my own uh, I was definitely really scared of like breaking things for other people and it didn't help that when we like that RubyConf after getting commit bit uh, we we released like Bundler and it broke Bundler for everyone and I think there was a while of like six releases where every other release was a broken release that we had a like yank uh, so it was definitely like kind of rough a little bit when I was getting started And it took us, like, 15 months or something since I joined to get, like, Bundler 1.1 out. And I started working on that, like, a while ago.
0: So one of the questions that I had planned to to ask was, what's the difference between, you know, working on a project like Bundler that's so core and such infrastructure for most Ruby projects compared to... You know a project that's that's not you know as low level and not as uh depended on by the community, but <laughs> maybe you haven't ever had one of those projects
1: <laughs> uh, i mean i've I've definitely had like when i was uh when I was working at other inbox I had a lot more side and hobby projects that were fun um and you know it didn't really matter what you did uh and you could abandon them however you wanted to um with bundler it's been it's been interesting, like I've had to figure out like how to be conservative and it it's been a learning process of just like being too conservative uh but also moving the project forward um and so I've been super thankful to to Yehuda and Carl and andre uh they've all been really instrumental in I think me developing as a programmer working on that project and kind of guiding me uh oddly enough uh like I think it's, like, Colin and Yehuda don't really work on Bundler very much these days. I think Yehuda comes in and, like, talks about, uh, like, larger issues sometimes with us, like, from a consulting kind of perspective or, like, an advisory point of view. Mm -hmm. He doesn't do as much code uh, nowadays. And Andre's been kind of leading the charge for the last, like, year and a half, um, kind of maintaining that project. And I mostly just do features... Uh, every now and then we talk about higher level things, but it, I he uh, he's the one that's a little more aggressive, at least in the beginning, about merging pull requests and other things. And I'm the guy who has to come in and be like, "Hey, wait a minute, let's think about that. Like, I'm not sure this is a good idea." So it, it's nice to kind of have that balance, I guess, of uh, where we can talk about something and and
0: mm-hmm. uh, decide together and come to a conclusion. So I was so interested in listening to your your comments about Bundler that I forgot to ask you to describe it for someone that's listening that may not understand exactly what Bundler does. Oh yeah. So uh, I would take so, a step back and do that.
1: Yeah. So Bundler, if you're not familiar, um, is a dependency manager system for Ruby. So it allows you to specify uh, various libraries that you want, and then it'll go and pull those down and figure out the dependency graph and pull all of your dependencies dependencies all the way down. And so you just have to specify essentially your top-level dependencies and you can get a working application. And this has helped a lot with uh, onboarding. So like the the problem that hit home for me way back in the day was uh, onboarding a new um, person on your team or in open source, you can now just package a gem file, which is where you specify your dependencies in your project, and then you type a single command bundle install and you get all of your dependencies and you're up and running. You don't have to figure, uh, all this other stuff out. So in a way it's, uh, both a tool and a, the gem file provides the gem file and the gem provide documentation for your project. Um, so for your application, it's super, super important. It's kind of been adopted as the standard of how we do things in Ruby land.
0: Yeah. I wonder, I, I would imagine that, uh, the majority of people listening or at least Near half, if not the majority, haven't worked in in Rails without Bundler existing. Um, yeah. What do you think the biggest change is? You know, so w- what would be the biggest surprise to a new Rails programmer today if they transported in a time machine back three years ago before?
1: I think you'd be surprised how hard and difficult like these things were. Like like this stuff just isn't a problem anymore. Like it isn't something you think about. And the dependency world back then was kind of crazy. And I think it, uh, I think two things happened, uh, Bundler came out and, uh, Nick Horanto and all those guys who, guys and girls who worked on like the new Ruby gems and making that super simple to publish gems. So like mm-hmm. also worked by like, you know, like technical pickles with, uh, jeweler and, you know, you have hoe and all these tools around, uh, that made gem publishing easier. So I think that and Bundler made kind of this gem, the Ruby gems ecosystem much more vibrant. Because now it's just so simple to publish a gem and, and have dependencies and then get those dependencies and, and get them to work. And back in the day that was definitely not the case. It was definitely an ordeal to publish a gem, uh, which is why we didn't see a lot of gems with dependencies. So uh, a good case of this is like if you look at rails back in the day and you look at its dependency list, it was much smaller and the gems were definitely like bigger. Um, and now you're kind of seeing like more interdependencies in modules which introduced their own set of problems, but the fact that you can do that now and, and break stuff up smaller, and like even in enterprises like extracting, or in like your own private project, extracting code into gems and making those available and, and having that system just was not something that was even
0: considered back in the day. So the community has a bias, I think, uh, currently against um, including too many dependencies, or really many at all, in, in uh, gems that come out. Do you think that that's with good reason or maybe overdone or um what's your point of view about that
1: yeah i mean to some extent uh i I think it's a little overdone but i can see why like uh working at heroku and doing support for heroku i've seen my fair share of a lot of applications and uh like it's not uncommon to see applications that have 200 sometimes up to three hundred like gem dependencies like that's a lot of library code that uh, you're depending on that you didn't write you know mm-hmm. um and i think with with stuff like bundler and Ruby gems now it's so easy to like add another dependency like you don't have to really think about it right you add a single line you run a new command, you check in your code, and you're kind of good to go um but at the same time uh like I, I think type modules that work well uh are definitely a boon to the community, and we shouldn't be too afraid to use them but right. uh it's definitely like a lot of the the gems that we do use uh are kind of generalized solutions as they are in open source, and obviously anything that you were to write yourself um would be much more specific and smaller, and you wouldn't have it wouldn't do nearly as much right. um and and the other the other side, uh, from a pure like, low-level low performance perspective, is the more gems and stuff you had in your load path, the slower it takes to boot your app, because any time you, you do require, it has to like work through the whole thing.
0: Right. So what do you think is today's Bundler um, dependency management kind of problem that, that in three years or five years from today, we'll look back and it'll be solved the same way that dependency management was solved by Bundler? Do you have an idea about that?
1: Uh, I don't have anything on the top of my head i mean something i would love to see would be like uh performance tooling or like introspection kind of mm. like you look at like the you'll get jruby and the jvm and looking at how robust the tooling ecosystem is there uh with the fact that you can like uh i mean this is nature of the vm but like you can introspect like you can you can launch a uh a tool in it, you can examine the memory and you can, like, see it in real time and, and you can dump memory out and then load it into, like, a new VM and, and stuff like that. Like, I think while that opens a lot of doors on, like, what you can do in production and what you can do in your application.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but even, even from the beginning of tooling, like, work that uh, Amon Gupta and, like, Sam Saffron are doing uh, with just trying to make people aware of, like, performance and other heuristics around that I think are are going to be really important uh, if we want to Ruby to continue to be as popular as it is today and continue to grow um, as we start building bigger applications
0: so that's a super super good um, segue into talking about Heroku and Ruby and Ruby two point one and Ruby in general so um, before I get into some specific Ruby two point one um, Sort of questions. Uh, Tell us a bit about what you do for Heroku now, as it relates to maintaining Ruby.
1: Uh, So my main job at Heroku, I work with Richard Schneeman, and uh, I run the we call it the Ruby Task Force at Heroku, and our job is to provide the uh, an amazing experience for deploying and running like Ruby applications on the platform. Um, And so this this like that's a huge umbrella and it, it covers like a ton of stuff so obviously the thing that most people are, are familiar with our work is the uh, the Ruby build pack uh, which is the the like glue code that does all the Ruby specific bits when you deploy so it it gets your dependencies using bundler it determines what version of Ruby you' are running it does any of the like it things it needs to do to cache gems between deploys it Does stuff with uh, Rails three and Rails four. Runs rake assets precompile. Writes like a database YAML file based off of your database URL provided by your database add-on stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it kind of wraps all that into one piece of package. That um, at Heroku we have these uh, this the service. Uh, that is the slug compiler that essentially builds the slugs, which is your application with all of its dependencies and whatnot. So the, it it executes the Ruby-specific bits for you.
0: So whether this is unfair or not, I'm not sure. But sometimes people complain about how long it takes to, to build a new slug of their app and relaunch it. Um, since it sounds like you're about the best guy I can imagine to ask about this. You know what would you what would you say to those people and you know what tips to would you give to make it go faster? you know what takes the amount of time that it takes et cetera um
1: yeah, so uh I think uh people assume that the build pack's actually super simple and you don't actually have to do a lot but uh we actually put a lot of time and energy into making the build pack uh deal with issues that you don't want to have to deal with like Fetching and figuring out what Ruby to install fetching like doing security stuff for it um there's a bunch of hacks we had to put in for Ruby gems uh, like things that you just don't have to you you shouldn't as a user want to or care to deal with right like you just want Ruby and you want it to work um, other things like obviously things that are known to be slow or like when you run bundle install it has to uh run bundler. And potentially, depending on how large your gem set is, like, it can be slow. Uh, we recently started supporting Bundler 1.5, or yeah, Bundler 1. five, and that added parallel install. So we're doing that now. And to give you kind of metrics, we started doing metrics this uh, last year, and um, I think we've improved build performance when we started measuring it uh, by 40% from when we started measuring it to what it is now. Wow. So we're definitely very aware of the fact that it is slow and that fast is a feature.
0: Um, so so, so the, the parallel install is is done by default by, by the build pack, right?
1: Yes. So we enable it by default. Uh, we ran into some hiccups and we've contributed patches back. Uh, obviously, like me being on Bundler Core, we have a tight integration with the Bundler team and... I personally did not work on the parallel a lot of the parallel install feature, but I helped bring certain things to the finish line, like getting the RCs out and whatnot and uh, there's there's Emily a lot of there's still more stuff we can do there, and there's uh, a ton of stuff that's on uh, our plate for making the ecosystem better um, and in general, like at Heroku, we, we try to improve the community ecosystem uh, if we can and upstream stuff and not just do Heroku specific things. Right. Um, uh, like, uh, the Bundler one-one stuff when we did the API dependency thing to make those things faster. Uh, so there's the Bundler stuff that's slow, uh, shelling out in Ruby is not necessarily super fast either. Um, so we've been trying to aggressively cache those things and figure that stuff out. Um, and then, uh, I think the the slowest thing for a lot of people is probably rake assets precompile, mm-hmm. um. And that's just kind of been a huge sore point for, I think, us and the community as a whole, and people in Rails
0: um, dealing with sprockets and, and all those issues. Um, now, what's uh, the current state of that? Is it, it, it um, have changes been made in either four or four one to how the precompile happens? In other words, is it uh, does it precompile everything or just do an incremental change on on based on what files changed? Do you know?
1: Um, it's supposed to just do incremental stuff, but it has to do. It still has to do a bunch of calculations to figure that out. Uh, I mean, to, to throw it on the table, like it's it's a super hard problem. Like as much as we, uh, you know, complain about the software, like the the problem they're trying to solve is not simple at all. Like I spent a ton of time talking with Yehuda about it over the last few years, being unhappy with the current solution when it came out, and and not being fast enough, and not You know, it having to do all this other stuff. um, And uh, if you guys ever followed, uh, there was that rake pipeline project that you worked on um, that was never finished. But like, you know, it's it's a hard problem to solve. uh, And trying to figure out the dependency chains is not something that's super simple. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you have to figure out the require and load order, which is also important, or it might break your assets.
0: Um, What what about the um, what about pre booting? Is that is that supported by Heroku now? And is, I know it used to be a labs feature. It it still is
1: a labs feature. The Heroku preboot feature is a labs feature. Um, and the, the feature that you're talking about just to explain to people who aren't familiar is that, uh, Heroku will, uh, it extends your deploy time because Heroku will wait for essentially all of your slugs to boot up and then cut over once they are. Um, but it's I like a hard fast so keep your old slugs up and requests request them and then wait till your new slugs are up and then switch them over um and uh it's we're not i we we at the company aren't happy with that feature uh we understand that it's a problem that needs to be solved uh which is why it's a labs feature and the labs feature was a spike to solve that issue um but I think we can do better, and we want to come up with something that is better before enabling it essentially for all customers. Because uh, one of the huge downsides is it uh, inc- it makes your deploy times really long. Um, and for something that needs to be agile and fast, and um, it's not adequate enough.
0: Yeah, as a user, that's sort of the the rough off I think I've faced at least.
1: Yeah, well, especially if you you need to fix a bug like and you need something yeah. done quickly, like you don't want to be waiting like five minutes to, like, get this thing out, right?
0: So. so that that's an area that hasn't come out of labs just because, because it's it's very important, not because it's not important.
1: Right, no, we're definitely aware of the issue. I personally am not working on the problem, but I've been involved in discussions and, uh, you know, like, some of the stuff that comes out of that, like, uh, talking about, like, rolling deploys uh, as a potential thing uh, and, and things that come out of that that you have to think about is, like, how they affect assets and other things and database migrations. And how do you handle that, uh, eloquently? And can you, and, in and those problems there, like you don't want to have rolling deploys and people getting broken assets and how they affect your CDN and whatnot.
0: Right. So tell us a bit more about what, uh, what's entailed with, with supporting a new version of Ruby. So let's be specific. So take Ruby 2.1 that becomes available recently. What happens, uh, at Heroku and with you to make sure that that's a smooth process for those of us that use Ruby 2.1 on Heroku.
1: Sure. Uh, So with each one, my goals with the team has been trying to get Ruby releases out on day zero and to support the core team with preview releases when they release them. Um, And so I have a script that actually builds all these rubies, so we've automated it. Um, and it's up on my GitHub somewhere. I can send you the link, post the podcast if you want to link to it. Um, but it, essentially it goes through and it downs the source files and it configures it. And, I've, and uh, I spent a ton of time like figuring out how to build rubies and, and the different configuration options, and there's actually some differences between the different rubies and how you build them. Um, so for instance, there's this amazing flag called enable-load-relative, uh, but in Ruby 187 and 192, it doesn't work. <laughs> uh, and so what this flag does, it allows you to build a Ruby, and uh, the, it, a lot of times you like set a prefix of where you want it installed. So like on Heroku, like Ruby goes in a very specific directory, and you would prefix it there uh, so it's there. Uh, so one of the things that we have to do with that Heroku is in our build system stuff gets built in a temp directory, so like a tempter gets made, and uh, you know all your stuff gets built there, which is, you know, when you're handling multiple builds and things, it seems to make a lot of sense, right? Uh, and one of the problems that people aren't aware of is that if you don't use something like enable load relative, if you try to use a Ruby binary that is not in the prefix that you tell it to install, your all your load paths are messed up, and you can't require anything. Uh, so you can't even require anything in standard lib. And, uh, it, it was, I mean, like a huge challenge, like figuring all that stuff out. And then uh, in Ruby 187 and 192, like that flag didn't exist. And we actually filed bugs and got stuff fixed in Ruby 193, I believe. Um, and I, I sat down with Yehuda and we, we dug through the C code um, and figuring out like, why things worked and didn't work. Um, and uh, so, actually, for Ruby 187 and 192, we build two different Rubies. We have a build Ruby. Where we know where that is, that isn't in the production mm-hmm. one, and we also have like your production Ruby that gets bundled into your app, your slug uh, to be used during runtime. Uh, but for Ruby one nine three and up, we can actually just flip this flag on, and then you can have Ruby, and it will find all the your libraries properly, um, and you can put it anywhere. So I think Takedo uses this uh, for the Mac Ruby for building its Rubies as
0: well. Huh. So it sounds like yeah, like at first it was quite a bit of work to get all this working, but now you've got it relatively yeah, smooth. Yeah, so
1: at least building a Ruby is not uh, too bad. Um, and then we kind of just run it through a gamut of tests of applications, other things to make sure it's not breaking anything when we publish it out. Um, and so when a new Ruby comes out, we can build it and test it and then release it usually within a few hours of the release notice. Um, so we, we try to be pretty good about that. Um, and then the same thing with patch levels, like, you know, like a lot of the patch levels are security fixes. So we want to get those out as soon as possible.
0: Right. Uh, so uh, when you, uh, looked into your crystal ball at what, you know, what problems may be solved in five years that seem really hard right now, you talked about, um, performance and, and introspecting the applications, you know, performance characteristics and et cetera. So 2.1 is a pretty, A pretty big release for that topic um have you looked much into the areas that sam saffron's been talking about and you know do you have any thoughts about what heroku can do to take advantage of um ruby's sort of gc uh uh, new gc information in 2.1 or any other features that that seem interesting
1: um i mean i haven't I don't have very strong thoughts on what Heroku specifically can do for Ruby two one besides enabling and uh i guess like help document and and make that those tools available to people um I mean you should be able to run any of that stuff on Heroku obviously running like some of the profiling stuff that like amon had if you go to amon's blog like Amon has a great post on profiling um an application like that's actually running like you can insert code and and get output out um obviously that's a little harder on heroku without being able to SSH into a box so i I love to see us move in direction i know it's on the table somewhere but it's just not the most important thing we're working on right now Mm -hmm. um to be able to use uh those tools uh and obviously not just ruby like uh, getting that kind of access uh, opens lots of doors to lots of other debugging and performance tools in other languages uh, especially things like the JVM and uh but yeah like uh some of that stuff is really awesome uh the the rack there's that rack middleware he references that you can use to kind of get that information out of your application as well right uh, so that probably will have to suffice for now at least on Heroku unless you want to just run stuff uh with that's not like your main application, uh, with production data and you just want to run it in a dyno and kind of get heuristics and performance, then you can obviously do that, uh, in its own, uh, rendezvous
0: shell. But yeah, but, I mean, for what it's worth, I think that, that, um, figuring out what settings to use to, to optimize your, the performance characteristics of your app, given, given whatever your goals are, whether it's, you know, fast boot time or fewer GCs or shorter time per GC or, you know, whatever it is you're trying to do. That seems pretty, uh, that, that's a new topic for a lot of people that are programming in Ruby and, and anything to help with that, I would think would be, would be pretty nice, especially given that the memory sort of ceiling on Heroku is, 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 is well, it exists. I mean, it always exists, but it, it may be lower than it would be on your own machine.
1: Sure. Uh, yeah, and, and I think one of, the, one, so one of the big improvements in 2.1 that uh, I think a lot of people probably won't notice is that, uh, uh, at least not immediately, is that uh, like a lot of those GC defaults have been tuned uh, to, mm-hmm. for larger applications uh, out of the box. Um, so the Ruby 2.1 has different defaults than uh,
0: before 2.1. Right. So uh, talking about Ruby uh, in our conversation before we started recording, you mentioned that you uh, received a commit bit for Ruby. So uh, that's uh, super exciting. Congratulations. And tell us a bit about that.
1: Thank you. Uh, yeah, so um, being at Heroku, where um, I'm on the Ruby security mailing list, uh, just because it's, you know, for platforms and other people supporting Ruby, it's it's kind of nice to get to know things ahead of time. So you're ready and you can provide good support for your customers. Um, and then, uh, so there was talk, uh, there was that Ruby, uh, there was that heap security incident that mm-hmm. happened in November. Um, and there was this big discussion at Heroku, like, what are we going to do? Um, and at the end of the day, it was my call. Uh, so you know, Ruby one eight seven, uh end of life uh with security stuff in uh I think the end of June, June twenty ninth or something like that. And uh Ruby one nine two kind of didn't have I people don't really know what happened to it, I think, at, at that time and like there was no real announcement. Uh so the story actually is that uh the maintainer uh told Matt at Ruby Kagi that she didn't have time to work on it anymore, so she was kind of done with it. And uh, I think that was the official end of life uh, for that, so it never got any patches after that date. Hmm. Um, But, like, there was no public announcement or anything made on that. Um, And I'll go, we can go more into that later. But uh, we we have customers that are both on 187 and 192, and this was kind of a big deal security incident, but there was patches made for 193 and two zero zero. Um, and then two one preview releases, uh, so we had to figure out like what we were going to do, I guess, like are we going to leave our customers high and dry we haven 't really like made any announcements that we weren't we were going to stop supporting these rubies, and so we had to make the decision that to to kind of backport these security fixes and uh, make those available to our customers. Uh, I think that day was probably would not be the best day to tell people you 're not supporting them anymore <laughs> right. uh so uh and obviously we don't want to be in the business of uh like supporting these rubies like independently like we there's only two of us on the team and there's a lot for us to do so we have pretty limited resources um but i made the call that it's not good to leave our customers uh in a tight spot like that and we have a bunch of customers on 192 and 187 still so we decide to backport and release our own rubies and we made those open source um but one of the things we wanted to do was uh, work upstream and, and get those things into, like, the main repository. And uh, Zachary Scott, also known as ZZAC, uh I think after that incident kind of vouched for me and and asked for me to get CommitBit um, on core to help maintain that stuff um, and figure a lot of that stuff out. So that's kind of how I got CommitBit. So I got tasked, and there was been an announcement that me and Zach are maintaining 187 and 192 security fixes till uh, June this year Um, so you have another few months five months I guess left of that and then there's this whole process and policy in place of renewing that Um, and and other things we noticed uh, at that time was just like how many vendors are doing this work right? like you have Red Hat that has to do it um, I'm sure and then I'm pretty sure GitHub did it as well they have uh, Ruby 187 on some stuff I think Still, and then you have you know your other Linux distros and other platforms. who have to do all this backporting work. So uh, one of the goals that came out of that for me and Zach was to to kind of like pull all of our resources together, uh, like as a community, and not essentially duplicate all this work um, and kind of have the central repository around that. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> so so g- give me a couple lessons you've taken away from from that whole process of. You know, one getting involved in actually patching Ruby to to going through the, the decision making about how to support the old Rubies um, and the rest of it. Sure.
1: Uh, so one of the, th- the first thing I learned uh, was that uh, Ruby one eight seven is really old, and <laughs> uh, like when you when you start backporting this code. So one of the nice things is that all the like a lot of these tests are written in Ruby itself, but like obviously a huge amount of source code is written in C. So in order to test like you know, someone submitted the security patch and you know it has C code and then there's a bunch of Ruby code uh, with it uh, to test it. Um and one of the things is that like when you backport these uh you know you backport this code and it applies cleanly for the most part, except like obviously version files and things like that. Uh and I was like, great, you know, and then I, I compiled it and I and I manually tested it on Heroku to make sure that the submitted uh like thing that would break it uh, does not break anymore, um, which happened, and, and then we released those. Uh, but then uh, the whole testing thing is its own beast. Uh, we found out that the testing infrastructure, like some of the methods that are used, are not actually in the Ruby 187 codebase anymore. And then uh, I was also told to use this backporting tool, so uh, if people don't know uh, all the source codes in Subversion and not in Git, I think which is a surprise to people who don't aren't familiar with Core at all, Uh, So I I relearned how to use Subversion uh, because it's been a long time. And, uh, but like uh, these, these helper methods that they're using to test this code is not in one eight seven and the backporting tools that they told me to use to backport the code was not introduced to Ruby one nine three. So neither of those helped me like actually like doing this stuff for one eight seven or one nine two. So I had to manually do like the backporting. So I learned how to do that and like all the little things you have to do for incrementing those numbers. Um, and then Zach and I are in the process of trying to figure out how to backport all these like test helper methods back to 187. Uh, 192 is not as bad, obviously, but like the jump between 18 to 19 is actually pretty huge, and uh, I've been relearning that um, as we've gone forward through that. Um, and some of the other stuff has just been, like, working with Core is like a totally different experience than working with your standard open source project. The fact that there's a lot of people who are Japanese and, uh, like English is not their primary language, and they have their own processes and stuff in place. And I think it's really easy to miss that if you're not involved in working with it day and, every day. Um, <laughs> and so, one of the things that Zach and I, like one of our big goals for this year, is trying to make getting involved with Ruby, like the language that everyone loves and and uh, uses every day, like make it easier and much more approachable. Um, so I would love, like, pipe dream goal. Uh, we'll see how it pans out. But, like, we would love to move subversion, or move off of subversion and onto Git. Um, but there's obviously a bunch of stuff that has to take place to make that happen. Um, and so, like, we're going to sit down and, and try to figure all those things out so it is a smooth transition. Um, uh, I don't think core, like, from what I can tell, is actually opposed to moving to Git. But, like, you can't just move it over the next day and, Uh, I think a lot of people just think you just put the repository in GitHub and then you're done, kind of. Um, But, like, there's a ton of tools and other things that are built around Subversion, and you have to make all those things work, and you have to make the workflow that everyone uses on core now still work and not break. And uh, they use Redmine for all their ticketing stuff, and that's totally linked to Subversion right now and and all their backporting tools. Like, they have a bunch of tooling in the repository around all this stuff, and you basically have to make all those things work uh, with Git
0: and do you uh do you work with mats at all given given the ruby core involvement now and the heroku tie uh
1: i don't work with mats too closely uh the sponsorship for ruby that heroku does so if people don't know uh heroku sponsors mats uh koichi and nobu um i think most people know who mats is uh but, like, for Koichi and Nobu, uh, Koichi's the guy who wrote all the new garbage collection stuff, more or less, in Ruby 2.1, and is kind of the main VM guy uh, on the Ruby project, and Nobu's, they call him the patch monster, so he he does a crap ton of bug fixes. He's, like, one of the top committers on Ruby uh, right now. Um, so we sponsor all those guys, uh, but they're kind of left, like, on their own. Like They they still live in Japan. Like A common question I get asked when I'm at conferences is, like, is, does, has Matt's moved to San Francisco or anything? And, you know, no, he still lives in Matsui, like in his hometown. And, and uh, uh, we, we would like to have better ties and um, we're working on that process. But, um, you know, the sponsorship is definitely a, like, an investment in the Ruby community to make it better. Right. Uh, and we don't direct or tell them what to do. But I think we're in a position to help out Help out with providing data and other feedback and stuff to help uh, give information to them to help them figure out what to work on and stuff.
0: So it seems like you personally have found your way to to very high value, low glory projects with Bundler and and Ruby Core one eight seven and one nine two. Is that is that a surprise to you that you, your sort of career has gone that way, or do you think that that's a a function of your personality in some sort of way? Um,
1: I mean. I, I think a lot of it has come out of uh, I don't know if it's part of my personality, uh, maybe it is, uh, but I think a lot of that has come out of like being in the position I'm in and seeing the problems that when you you have to do with a large amount of customers uh, and you, and you need to make every one of them successful and and at such a large scale, like you kind of you kind of are looking at problems that affect people like like small things that affect a ton of people like if you shave off 10 seconds off of, like, 10,000 builds, that's, like, a huge savings in hours, right? Um, but, like, for the average person, it might not be a whole lot. Um, so those kind of things, and uh, like, a lot of the policy work that I've been working on uh, with Ruby Core has come out of, like, the fact that at Heroku, we've had to deal with these issues, and we we kind of need that information. Um, and, uh, like, the work on Bundler is just, like, obviously that's super uh... Important for the kind of service we want to provide, right like having good dependency management support is super important, making sure it works, making sure it's fast and performant uh, is
0: important to providing good service hmm. so you mentioned uh, Yehuda cats a number of times earlier um, Give us a few lessons or a couple lessons that you've taken away from from that experience
1: uh, yeah, uh, working with Yehuda has been has been an amazing experience. He's a, a very unique individual, but he's a super bright guy, and uh, when he goes down and tackles problems, he's he likes to be very in-depth about it, and uh, his attention to detail is pretty amazing. Uh, it's It was definitely a huge loss, I think, on Bundler when uh, he stopped working on it as much. Um, like, his ability to bring issues to light... His attention to having really good user interfaces and intelligent error messaging is super. It's super great. Like the the reason that Bundler uh, works the way it does with the like the CLI and the error messaging uh, and and kind of values he's brought into the project have been pretty good. Um, like he's he's really pushed like good error messaging. Like if you can provide a better error message, like you should do it, and like guiding users on what to do next and and having next steps and not just throwing ugly back traces back. Um, like in a lot of other, open, like polish is very important to him. Hmm. Um, other things like, um, being very attentive to like good project maintenance. Uh, like we, we work really hard on Bundler to be backwards compatible and to follow stuff like Semver and not to break things. We've had to revert stuff that would have been really nice to have because those are values we have in the project. Um, like, you don't want to upgrade your version of Bundler and have, like, your gem file and stuff break. Like, that's just not something you want to do. So, like, abiding to those practices are definitely values that I got personally from working with him and made me be conservative on a lot of a lot more fronts and trying to provide that experience. And hopefully I bring a lot of that stuff to Heroku as well. Um, but I've definitely learned a ton working with him. And if you ever have a chance to, like work on an open source project uh, with him, like, I would say you should
0: go do it. Uh, there's so many things you can learn from working with that guy. So there, um, uh, I saw you mention somewhere, and I don't remember where now, something about learning from Python, too. I think it was at, uh, I think it related to Bundler in some sort of way, but I'm not positive. Um, am I imagining that, did, did I read that right, that, that you were uh, taking some lessons from Python?
1: Maybe, uh, maybe I, I... I feel like I would say a statement like that. I don't remember the exact <laughs> thing that you uh, are talking about. Uh, well, neither do I. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess just working on the languages team, like, one of the uh, one of the great things about working... So we have a languages team at Heroku for all the, like, languages we support on the platform, and we recently just hired a PHP guy, so I'm super excited to see uh, where that goes, and, and mm. not being a avid PHP... You know, developer anymore. Uh, having like interviewed the guy a bunch of time, ta- like interviewed a bunch of people, and, and working with the guy, it's, it's nice to see that community move forward. And they have this whole dependency management tool called Composure now, and it's very similar to Bundler. Uh, so it, it's great to see you know language communities progress uh, as a whole. I think Heroku's in a very interesting spot that uh, it internally is a very polyglot company, and we have to support a bunch of different developer communities. And they each have their own differences and values. Uh, so, so one thing is like, for instance, in Python, like things are very explicit. Uh, but like in Ruby, and especially with Rails and stuff, we have this like convention over configuration. So there's assumptions in place, right? And having that background of coming from Perl as well. Uh, so like DHH touts like convention over configuration all the time. But like a very good example, uh, I think Yehuda actually talks about this at his Railsberry talk uh, back in 2012 um but basically like if you um look at how uh rails handles CR- csrf uh, security stuff mm-hmm. versus um um python uh it's very different so in in python you have to uh uh so if you're not familiar with csrf stuff csrf like you have to generate this token uh so it can validate um that you know the form's coming from uh the user on the server and stuff uh and in, in Python, like, you actually have to enter, or in Django, you have to enter this like, code snippet, and it's in the documentation, like, in your form, like, you build the form, you enter this thing to generate the token. Um, and in Rails, like, you you if you use the form tag helpers, it's automatically done for you. Like, you don't have to think about it. It's not something you have to worry about. Um, but um, that's just kind of the differences of the community. Like, whether one's right or wrong is like, I think it's like splitting hairs there, but it is kind of, it's interesting working in, uh, Essentially, when all your coworkers have different views from yours, and and coming to an agreement and respecting them. So, I think there's definitely a ton of stuff we can learn from Python and vice versa, and you know all the other communities too, like Node and uh, Java and uh, uh,
0: PHP as well. Um, it seems like you're in a cool yeah, spot. I mean, you're in a cool spot given both the visibility of other languages, and to your point about the Japanese culture, given. Given the you know Ruby's history and present uh, in terms of who develops it, it's it's sort of a cool place to be to see that uh, not everyone's just like you. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, uh, on behalf of everyone, thanks for all the work you do on Bundler and on Ruby and on uh, Heroku. Since so many people use it, I think you've made a just a huge, huge impact on the community, and uh, it's super appreciated
1: yeah no problem uh, I, I love uh love giving back um so no no yeah go ahead
0: I was gonna say so let's fi- let's let's finish up talking about giving back and and you mentioned rails girls at the beginning um, yep yeah tell us a bit about rails girls and what it's about and and how you're involved and
1: sure uh so rails girls is a non profit movement group i guess to to help tackle, I guess, the diversity issue. But, uh, one of the things that has really drawn me to it, um, like I've never envisioned myself historically as like one who's like been a huge person, uh, working on these kind of, uh, issues, but now it kind of hits home a little bit, having been involved with, uh, the, uh, group, I guess. And, uh, one of the things that I, so it, so the rails that most people are familiar with is it's, uh, it's this one to two day workshop that's thrown in uh, various cities around the world and it allows women to, so there's like, usually the first day is like this install fest um, and you install Ruby and rails on people's computers. So they come in and, and you, uh, you have these coaches who come in and help uh, get all these people set up uh, for the workshop the next day. And usually there's like, um, like drink, like, there's some type of drinks and and uh, snacks and stuff provided, uh, and and trying to just give this like very like homely like like feel to it, so you don't feel like you don't feel stupid asking questions, just kind of like really breaking ice. And the next day is like this whole workshop um, that tries to get women uh, interested in technology. So I don't think the goal for me has never been about teaching people rails specifically i think rails is just a a tool uh to expose uh people to technology but um the stuff that is super important is the showing people this world that they may not be familiar in um mm-hmm. and they might be distant to it and have assumptions and kind of breaking those assumptions down um and like giving them vocabulary and other things about technology uh so, so one of the things that uh, they do at some of the Rails Girls workshops is this bento box exercise, and what it is is you you know if if you're not familiar, like the bento box is this box uh, that's usually per, that is Japanese in origin, and it it has like a compartment for different uh, pieces of food, and it's supposed to be this like complete meal essentially that provides like nutrients, like all the nutrients you need to have a healthy meal. And uh, uh, for Rails Girls, we use this analogy to Kind of, if you take like a an application, a web application, uh, you can kind of group like the different terminology words into different buckets, essentially. And so there's, we have these printouts, and we go through and we we have a like you go to look at Foursquare, and they list like all the things they use, and we go and try to bucket like what they mean. Like like if you have MySQL or Mongo, it might go in like this storage uh, bucket and. Uh, you know, you have logic for like programming languages and then you have like the front end and then you have, um, I forget like the other thing, but it essentially gives people like who are not familiar with technology, this vocabulary to, to kind of approach, uh, things like this whole world that they aren't like having that, that terminology and vocabulary and understanding, like you might not know the difference between MySQL and Postgres, but you both know, like they store data.
0: And I think that's like a huge jump for a lot of people there. Um, so tell me a bit about what's been most difficult as you've, you've gone to these events and gotten involved, something that, that uh, kind of knowledge you've taken for granted that you can't take for granted when, when you're involved with people that are very new to, to programming or to I Rails. I think you...
1: So, if, so if, if you've never been involved with the Rails Girls or Rails Bridge or something, some program like that where you're teaching these people, I highly recommend you go and do that. Um, I think it's a great experience. I think the the biggest takeaway you take uh that you realize is like how hard it is to be a programmer a lot of the things you take for granted how hard it is to get started um and uh one of the things for sure is like you realize that like getting started in rails is actually really complicated and there's lots of um like get like installing a ruby and packaging it is not a simple process uh like stuff like Rails Installer and RBM and RBM and all these tools have helped a lot, but, like, you know, someone who doesn't even know what the shell is, like, kind of throwing all that at them is definitely really hard, and uh, like, working on these programs, you realize how much it sucks to get started in Ruby and Rails, and, like, how much of a hurdle it is.
0: Yeah, do do you, um, have you used um, nitrous.io or any, I'm not sure if there are alternatives to that, where it kind of can can take some of the hassle, at least, of setting up your own development environment. Uh,
1: I personally haven't used Nitrous a lot. Um, I mean, to bring you up again, he's he's uh, pitched it to me a bunch. Uh, I've met the guys. Uh, I think they're now in San Francisco, but I met them in Singapore. And I've always thought it's like a really great idea and cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, just getting something set up where uh, for a lot of these girls or people, so they can work on something. Uh, after they leave um is really important um and may- maybe like having a service that allows you to do that uh, is the right way to go about it
0: um yeah, yeah, I don't really know i mean it, it's still hard, even if you have a nitrous box set up and you sit down it's you're right it's unbelievably complicated uh what goes into making a good rail or any rails project, let alone a good one yeah, um, uh yeah, explaining the shell to
1: someone is always uh, a fun experience i i think it's a i think it's a great experience just to go and like Try to teach people when you know you don't have that solid foundation when you talk to normal programmers of explaining what a, like concepts are like what is what is a scaffold you know like uh, like what is what is active record like how do these things work how do they piece together um, I think it's a
0: really rewarding experience cool. to go and do that. Well, if someone wants to get involved with Rails Girls, do you know how they go about doing that?
1: yeah uh so there's a there's the rails girls twitter account which tweets stuff a bunch of times but there's also the railsgirls dot com website and on there there's the uh there's usually locations uh so under the events you can see like locations where they are around the world and like what the upcoming ones are and uh if like you have a city that uh you live near that you can kind of participate in uh if you want to throw your own you can Uh, There's a form on there. Uh, It's, like, in your city, I believe, or something like that. And you just fill it out, and it sends it out to uh, the global Rails Girls mailing list. You can also sign up for that as well. There's a global Rails Girls mailing list, and it tells you how to get involved there. Um, And on that list is basically everyone who wants to be involved. So it's, like, a bunch of the organizers uh, around the world. Like, I think every single organizer who's ever thrown one is on there, as well as a bunch of coaches and other people who've helped out a ton and uh, everyone's super friendly on that list. Like, uh, it doesn't... Like, there's... It's never had to be moderated or anything. Like, it. Uh, everyone wants other people to be successful. Like, I've seen as far as, like, someone flying to another city to help out with, like, another Rails girl. So it's a super supportive community. And, uh, yeah, if, if you want to throw your own thing, you can get a ton of support from just, like, how to do it. So there's also on the... Guide if you go to guides.railsgirls.com, there's well, the first thing is like the things you need to do to throw Rails Girls event, and it has like everything you need to do in that guide. So um, if you want to go down that path, that's uh, totally doable and totally possible. So
0: cool. Well, tell everyone how they can connect with you after they uh, they hear you on this episode. Sure. uh, I'm
1: H1 E02 on Twitter, so you can always tweet at me, though I'm not always the best Twitter uh, person. Um, you can also email me, uh, it's the same thing at gmail.com, the same handle. Uh, and then anything Heroku related, Terrence at Heroku.com, you can reach out to me there. Uh, and then I'm also the guy, if you've never seen me before, I'm the guy who wears like this blue hat. Uh, so uh, if you see me at a conference, feel free to grab me and I'm more than happy to talk or chat about anything, Heroku, Ruby, or anything you want,
0: really. What kind of blue hat?
1: Uh, it's it's actually this uh, university hat I got from school. Um, it's like this baby blue hat and has an H on it, and it stands for Hopkins, for Johns Hopkins University. Uh, and uh, I just, it's kind of been, like, I never meant it for me, it to be my MO, but, like, it's kind of stuck with me, and now I feel weird not having it at conferences and other things because people recognize me with the hat. So <laughs> people like, like meeting up with people. It's super great. Cause people will find me in a crowd. Cause it's like that one guy with the blue hat. Like there aren't a lot of people like that.
0: Now do you have so, one of them or like a, a I, whole I actually only group. have one of them. Oh, and no. i
1: looked into, I've looked into buying another one, but I went to the Hopkins uh, store online where they sell like the super- paraphernalia and gear. And like, it just doesn't have they don't have it like they have other ones that are very similar but they don't have that exact hat and but yeah like i actually like wash it and stuff and there's like a special thing like a hat hamper thing you can put it in and
0: do you wash it in the in the dishwasher or in the No,
1: i wash it in like a laundry machine uh with the thing and i also hand wash it sometimes
0: so man this hat's got this hat has stories to tell
1: (laughs) yeah uh yeah there's uh actually like uh one of my friends uh I used to Skype and hang out with him a bunch. So I'd be like on the TV and his daughter would recognize me with this hat. And there was one time they were walking down the street and she saw a guy that had this like hat that was a similar color. And she was like, oh, it's Terrence and Terrence. And they went and she went to like go talk on him. And they're like, no, that's not him.
0: (laughs) So the irony is that your Skype avatar is in a cowboy hat, not your blue hat.
1: Yes, that was that's just from like a photo thing, a uh, photo booth Christmas party from Heroku. I mm. thought was a really cool hat. It was just like a prop thing,
0: but so it's not just blue hats. It's it's hats in general that you're into.
1: Yeah, maybe, <laughs> um, but it, I'm definitely recognized for the blue hat, not the <laughs> pink hat, because I don't even know where to find one of those.
0: Right. Well, hey, Terrence, thanks for all your time today, and uh, it's it's been great hearing about uh, Heroku and Ruby and Bundler and Rails Girls and in your background. For everyone listening, thanks for uh, tuning in to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Uh, This is Sean Devine, and I'm Barely Known on Twitter.